Olympics. Anybody watch the Olympics last couple weeks? Has that been fun? I've enjoyed this. I don't know. As a dad of girls, I've enjoyed sitting around with my girls um, in the evenings off and on and watching because there's a lot of female sports that we don't usually get to watch um, any other time. And so it's been encouraging. And now my 11-year-old wants to be a bobsledder. I don't know if it's ever going to happen, but you know, it's just that excitement of I want to go and do and be a part of that. So the the medals, I don't know if it's, this is like the final one, but Norway is in first with the most medals. Then Germany, I know we have a couple German families coming to Crestview, they're excited about that, right? Canada is third, and the U.S. is bringing up fourth place in the medal um, standings. But I've watched this, I saw it this year, um, watched it specifically um, in, the, in their faces when we did watch some of the award ceremonies when they got their medals, and this is an old thing, and I've got a video I want you to watch, it's an older video, hang with me on it, even though it's a few years old, but they, they figured this out a few years ago, how... The bronze medalists, the people that win the bronze medal, are usually happier than those that win the silver medals. Even though the people that win the silver medals, they're like second, like they're the second best people in the whole world at what they do, which is amazing. They usually aren't very happy. And the bronze medals who, who finished after them aren't as happy. They're sad. And they've got some terminology to this, and they figured this out. Watch this video, and then we'll follow it up. Why are silver medalists so upset looking when bronze medalists are thrilled? Like, to take one of my favorite examples, it's the 1994 Winter Olympics. And Nancy Kerrigan, who's this big American figure skater, she wins silver. Obviously, I can't say what Nancy Kerrigan was thinking up there, but psychologists have a pretty good guess. And that's because there's something called the silver medal face. The silver medalist, Carl Lewis, Throughout Olympic history, silver medalists are frequently the most unhappy people on the podium. Gold medalists? Ecstatic. Bronze medalists? Also very happy. Silver medalists? Frequently not impressed. So to explain this, I called up a psychologist. It's a really interesting bit of psychology. For a bronze medalist, they're thinking, well, I barely made it here. I could easily have not gotten any sort of medal at all. Whereas the several medalists are thinking more in the opposite direction. Well, I just barely missed this cutoff of gold. That is the most aggravating place to be, where you're going to think a lot about what could have done differently. It's called counterfactual thinking, and we all do it. Athletes are just like the rest of us, except that they're much more goal-driven or more goal-focused. So they're thinking more about counterfactuals all the time. The thing is that when it comes to the Olympics, they only get a chance every four years which is why it is so exciting to watch someone go from silver to gold. I think the very best athletes are ones who are very aware of their performance. And they're always thinking about what are the things that I can do to make myself even better. But also why it can be so devastating. The window where you're at your athletic prime is so small and the competition is so intense that silver medal might be the best they'll ever get. Isn't that crazy? And we've been there, right? And think about it. Um, You often lose the gold medal, especially if it's a team sport. You lose the gold medal, so you end up with the silver. Or you win in order to get the bronze. Um, And they don't even talk about fourth place, you know, on this video and where they land on this. But counterfactual thinking. We're always thinking about what might have been. You know, I could have been. I was so close to getting to that point. I could have had, I want this thing. I need that 
thing. And I, I think we do this so often in our lives, in our own lives, that it affects the peace that we have in our lives. So we've been in this series um, for the last few weeks. We've been talking about peace and how to get that peace. A few weeks ago, it was, you know, the God of peace, the peace of God, and how the difference kind of between those and what that looks like and what we can do to understand that the best. Last week, Dave came and gave a great talk on peacemakers and how hard it is, how hard it is for us to make peace, whether it's between us and someone else or between two other people. Being a peacemaker is a very, very difficult thing for us to do. And so today I hope that you can walk away with something. I want to give you something today that um, hopefully we, we take something that Jesus says and teaches us and we understand it in a completely new way. And I want you to walk away today with some peace that you never knew you could have before. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to grab them. John chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible and you want like a a real Bible with pages and words, there's some on the table on either side of the room. Go grab one of those. Or if you have your phone, get your phone out. Get your Bible app open. John chapter 14 is where we're going to be today. John chapter 14. This is known as the farewell discourse. This is Jesus in his teaching time with his disciples. It's a, the, one of the last times that he's with them, teaching them before he's arrested and crucified. So he's giving them some last minute instructions, some last things. And I want you to think of it this way. Don't think of it as one chapter where you can read in less than five minutes and you start and you finish and it's over and that was quick. Think of it as a discussion. They're sitting around the table, they're eating together and they're having this discussion. It probably lasted several hours this, this discussion. So it's gone, going back and forth, and John's highlighting um, some of the main topics out of this that, that we're going to look at. But think of it as this big discussion that's going on that's happening, and the disciples are feeling things. They've got these feelings that are a part of them that they're working through in this. And I would tend to believe that they're probably confused. They're a little bit confused. What's really going to happen? I know he's talked about this, but I'm not sure what's going to happen with this. They're probably afraid. Afraid of what might be tomorrow. They're doing some of this counterfactual thinking. What's going to happen? What if we lose? What if this doesn't work? I believe that they're looking for more evidence. All right. We've heard this dude speak. He's a great teacher. We've watched him do some miracles. This is awesome. But yet at the same time, we still want one more. Give us just a little bit more evidence so that we know that you really are the Messiah. I believe they're troubled. I think they want control. I think they want control in their own families. I think they want control in their neighborhoods, in their communities. I think they want control in their schools with their kids. I think they want control in their Congress and who they vote for and what they decide and the laws that they make up. And I think they want control... Because I think they live in a world that's out of control. You felt that at all this week? (laughs) The last couple weeks, if you watch the news, do you feel like everything's in control? Do you wish you had a little bit more control of everything that goes on around you? Yeah, I think these guys were there. And I think they were wanting a little bit more. So they were having these feelings that were going on inside of them. So John chapter 14. And before we get to 14, we've got to see this. You've got to back up just a little bit. In John chapter 13, leading up to this point, here is Jesus teaching these guys, and he says to them, I'm making a new covenant with you. So the Old Testament stuff, all those laws and everything, they're still good. Don't write them off. I'm not doing away with all those laws, but I'm making a new covenant with you. 
And there's new things that come about. And how you respond to some of those Old Testament laws are going to look just a little bit different in this. So Jesus is teaching them this. And he gets to this point towards the end of this where um, Peter speaks up. Peter's always good. He's always the one that's going to speak up first. And Peter, he has some questions for Jesus, but he says it at the end here. I'll do anything for you. Whatever it is, I'm there. I'll die for you. I'll go to prison for you. Whatever it takes, I'm a follower. I'm there for you. And he's speaking with emotion. So there's this feeling, emotion that's coming out in him. And we get to chapter 14, and Jesus starts addressing their emotions. He says it this way, verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. He didn't answer a specific question, right? He wasn't giving them, like, do this, do this, do this. He's speaking to their hearts. There's something to this. He's building up to something. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Then he says, I'm going to go away, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to go build a new home for you guys. It is going to be awesome. And they're confused by this because he tells them, you know, this is where I'm going. This is what I'm going to do. But they start having this discussion. Thomas speaks up, the one we often say doubting Thomas. So he's got some doubts. He's kind of confused by this. And his question is, is really legit. He says, uh, how do we know how to get there? If you're going there, tell us how to get there. I like you heading south out of town. How far south before you turn? What, what direction are you going so we know how to get there as well? And Jesus says, no, I am the way. I'm the way. Listen to what I have to say. That will be the way to get you there. Um, it, Philip speaks up then. They're having this discussion, right? Philip is the next one to, to speak up. He goes, you keep talking about the father. Okay, there's the father this and the father. We've not met the father. Maybe you have, but we haven't yet. Tell us more about the father. How do we know who the father is in this, what you're talking about? And Jesus says, I am the father. And then he continues to work through their emotions. He talks about security he talks about building trust with them. Um, he works on their comfort. He is addressing their feelings. And he says, I'm going to give you guys something, something that will help you walk through this. And he gives them the Holy Spirit. And he says, the Holy Spirit is there for you to be a comforter, to be a help. He's going to remind you of things. He's going to lead you through this. And I like the way he says this, verse 18 of chapter 14. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. Notice he didn't just say, I won't leave you alone. But he used a word to describe feelings. And when you think of the word orphan, Jesus is, is making a connection with them to say, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of all of you. Not, not just physically, but everything about you. You're not going to be an orphan here. Judas then speaks up. And again, th this is not Judas that betrays Jesus, not Judas Iscariot. This is Judas, the son of James. He often goes by the title Thaddeus, by the name Thaddeus. So I'll say this in verse 22. Thaddeus, I love that Thaddeus makes a connection. It's not just now, what direction are you heading? Tell us about the Father. He makes a connection between the spiritual life and the physical life. And he opens up a door then for Jesus to teach. But he asks it this way, how are you going to manifest yourself to us? Meaning, if you're the spiritual being and we're in this physical world, which is a great connection, I'm glad that he did this. He made this and then Jesus keeps talking. He goes, then I need you to do this. Keep my word. Obey what I've taught you. And when you follow my ways, when you obey what I've taught you, you'll be there. You'll know who I am. 
you'll understand that. You'll get to that point. In verse 25, Jesus then goes into this. Right in the middle of their confusion, of their trouble, of them wanting control, he says this, verse 25, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all these things, and he'll bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then he gives them this, verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Peace. I think the thing that they need, the thing that they want, that would help them get to not just an answer to all of their questions, but to a feeling that helps them understand all of their questions. I read it this way this week, and I like this, this thought. Without the gift of peace, the gospel is just an empty promise. I mean, seriously, think about that. When you're sitting at a, a graveside service, without peace, what good is the gospel message? It's just empty promises. But yet when you sit there and you feel that, that peace that you don't understand, that you can't get anywhere else, that peace gives to you an answer to the gospel that we can't understand. It just happens in our life. And this gift of peace with the gospel, it's the ultimate solution. It brings it all together. It puts it in something that we can handle then and we can say, yes, I get this. And I love it because it's a peace, one, that Jesus says it this way, the world can't give you. And even though he didn't say it, I'm gonna say it this way, and it's a peace the world cannot take away from you. The world can't give it, and the world can't take it away from you. And the only way to have this peace is by a gift from Jesus. It's nothing you can work towards. It's nothing you can earn. It's nothing you can work hard enough to understand or to get. It's only a gift that comes from Jesus. So let's break it down, all right? I want to do this, um, to try and be understandable with it. And I want to give you two lists, a list of peace from the world and a list of peace from God. Now, it's not exclusive. I, I know we can probably add to this list. There's more that can go to it. There's more that we can think of. But for this morning, let's see what we can come up with, the peace of the world and the peace of God. So the, the world will give you some peace, but it depends on feelings, it, it's, it's wrapped up in our feelings, just like the disciples as they were sent there. What were they feeling? And you know this as well. You work through this feeling. Um, Cicero, a Roman author, he claimed this. This is something that he wrote one time. He said, peace is liberty and tranquility. Liberty and tranquility, meaning peace is freedom and our ability to be okay with life. Freedom in the fact that we can go, ah, Okay, everything's good. I'm good. Everything's under control. Freedom and knowing that it's going to be okay. Here's the hard part with tranquility. Oftentimes, in order for one person to experience tranquility and peace in this idea, someone else is not. Someone else has to give something up. In order for someone to win the gold, someone has to win the silver. Right? In order for someone to be cool enough in this room, someone else has to be hot. You, you know the feeling, right? In order for me to find peace, because it's peace for me and the freedom in my tranquility, someone else has to give something up for me to find that 
peace. This is how the world does it. In order for one country to be free, they often have to go to war with another country and people die. Somebody has to give something up for someone else to have peace. That's the way the world operates in its peace giving and what it gives and how it gives. However, with Jesus, with God's peace, it depends on trust. I mean, think through back what we just said. Jesus was teaching them. He says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. Trust. Um, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust me in in this. Um, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And you're going to have to trust me that I'm going to come back and get you and bring you with me. I am the way. I am the Father. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. I will not leave you as orphans. Now, never in that does he say, hey, trust me in this, right? He doesn't say, because as soon as somebody says, trust me, automatically you start to question whether you should trust that person or not. Am I right? So Jesus doesn't say it that way, but yet everything that he said is built on trust of who he is and what he can do. It's not built on somebody else not getting it. It's based on trust on what he can do for us. Okay, let's go here. The world's peace. Um, In our world to have peace, there needs to be evidence. I need proof. Give me some, show me some evidence. And that comes and goes. It's, it's up and down. It's day to day. It happens. And the world dictates that my peace um, is part of my, it's connected to my finances. So if I have enough money, I'll have some peace. If my debt is too heavy, I don't live in peace. That's hard to come by. Is my career growing, right? Is, is my health good? Are my children going to be successful? If all of these things line up in the good and happy column of life, then I have peace. But how long do you ever stay in the good and happy column in life before someone steps in your uh-oh column um, and messes everything up? Or you step in the uh-oh column and you mess everything up, whether it's for you or someone else. Every once in a while, we get to spend a little time in the good and perfect and everything's good, you know, good and happy column of life. But we don't stay there very often. And we often need evidence I need more evidence that I'm good, that everything's going to be okay, that I'm happy. However, with God's peace, the evidence is already given. Really, if if a dude can tell me when he's going to die, how he's going to die, how long he's going to stay dead, when he's going to come back to life, and he pulls it off, I want to listen to what he has to say about life. I want to make sure that I'm connected with what he's teaching and how he's teaching it. And because we have that evidence of what he did and who Jesus is, then, hey, the evidence is already there. Do we need more evidence in order to get the peace that he offers? Okay, world's peace. If we, if we jump into the world and try and understand peace from this world, there's usually no margin for trouble. Usually no margin. As soon as, as soon as we get out of the good and happy column, there's no peace. Or we're losing out on peace. So there's no margin for trouble. And peace is often defined as the absence of things. So the absence of trouble, then I have peace. The absence of conflict, then there's peace in my life. The absence of pain. If, if those negative bad things are not in my life, then that's how I have peace. The trouble is, we're going to have those things. Those things are going to come. In fact, with God's peace, this is the cool part about it. He's, he's pretty bold and upfront and blunt about it. He just comes straight out and tells you, you're going to have trouble. In this life, John chapter 16, just a couple chapters over from this one, he tells them, you're going to have trouble. It's one of the promises of God. You're going to face some tough times in life. 
Get ready for it. The world. If we look at the world's peace, the world wants control. I want to control not only my life, but the life around me. I want to be in control of things. I want, I want everyone to think the same way I think, right? I want everyone to understand from my point of view how I feel and why I'm thinking this. I want everyone to vote the way I vote and to want the same kind of laws that I want. If that happens, then I'll have peace. But if that happens, somebody else may not have peace. That's the way the world operates. We want control, and oftentimes, oftentimes when I have control, I've been proven wrong a couple times in my life, right? So um, there's, there's times where my control isn't in control. However, with God's peace, God's in control. He's the one that's in control. We go back to Philippians. That's how we open this series. In Philippians chapter 4, um, there's a passage there where it talks about the, the peace of God that, that goes beyond our understanding and the God of peace that can be with us. And through that passage, we, we learned about this, right living, right thinking, right praying, right rejoicing. And it's not that that right living or that right praying or that right rejoicing or that right thinking is because of me and it's my way it's because it's God's way. The right way to live is God's way. He's in control. The right way to think is to put my mind into his and think the way he wants me to think. The, the right way to rejoice is rejoicing in him, not in what I can do. So that connection of letting God have control is how we can have the peace of God. And if not, the world's peace, it ultimately fails. No matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you work today, you never know what's going to happen tomorrow. And tomorrow may wreck it all. And you may not have any peace then because of that. If we're trying really hard to live by the world's peace. However, with God's peace, it always endures. It always endures. And here's a reason why I think. It's because it's a gift. It's what Jesus gives to us. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't try and get better at it. He gives it to you. You have to receive it. Therefore, there's nothing you can do to break it or to make it worse. It's something that he gives to you. Now, oftentimes we try and compare these two lists. Look at these two lists. And there's times where I'm like, can we go back to Thaddeus and maybe his comment. How do we bring these things together? How do we bring the spiritual life and this physical life? How does this come together? And we oftentimes start to make compromises. Have you been here? We make a compromise. I'm, I'm, okay, I'm going to give up a little bit of this so I can have a little bit of peace in this world. If I give up a little bit of this, maybe I can have some more peace in my life here in this world. But when you start to compromise, you really have to stop and ask yourself the question, what am I compromising? What's the compromise coming from? Wouldn't you rather have the peace of God, the God that can give you all of those things? Don't compromise on those. The way to do that then is to follow that peace and let God make that connection. But it is tough. Paul even talks about it. He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We struggle through this life trying to find out how to have this. But I want to encourage you to make your pick and choose to accept and believe that the peace of God is much better than the peace you can earn in this world. And it's all about focus. Where are you thinking? What are you trusting in? Where's, where are you going to settle in on the peace that God gives? 
or the peace that you're going to try and find yourself in this world. So this is what Jesus does. He tells, he's standing around with these guys, and he says, this peace I leave with you, this peace I give to you, not as the world gives, but it's what I give to you. Don't be troubled. Trust in this. Then two chapters later, in chapter 16, verse 33, he reminds us, this is the part where he says you're going to have trouble. He said, I've said these things to you that in you, you may have peace. In this world, you're going to have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. This was said right before he was arrested and crucified. Okay, get this. If, if I'm getting arrested tomorrow and going to get executed, I'm not thinking of peace, right? Peace is not what's on my heart or mind. I'm confused. I'm frustrated. I'm nervous. I'm scared. I'm afraid, just like the disciples were feeling. But here is the Prince of Peace, Jesus, giving them this gift of peace right before And he's helping them to be bold and passionate in what they're going to do to give them this peace. So the very last thing that he did before his his arrest, before his crucifixion, he gave them peace. He gave them the gift of peace. But watch this. This is fun. Chapter 20. Turn over 20. John chapter 20. The last thing Jesus gave to them was a gift of peace. Chapter 20. Starting in verse 19, on the evening of the day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and he stood among them and he said to them, peace be with you. It was more than a greeting. It was more than just, hi guys, how you doing? You know, it's, he was giving them peace. The very last thing that he gave them before his crucifixion, the very first thing that he told them when he came back was peace. giving the, Then he showed them his hands and his side, and then he said it again to them, peace be with you. My peace that I'm giving, I'm giving you this. It's the last thing and the first thing that he did for them. What an amazing gift that God gives to you, and you just have to receive it. That's all you have to do is trust and believe in him and receive it. Now, this week, I don't know about you, I... I really enjoyed this. I know it's going to sound strange that I enjoyed um, this, this thing because of a loss, but I enjoyed all of the quotes, all of the articles, all of the news coverings of Billy Graham this week. I don't know about you. It was, there was something about that, the peace that came through a loss of somebody's death that brought peace, I think, to our world for a short time. And it was encouraging, it was endearing to hear some of those stories, to listen to some of that, to read some of his quotes, and to be reminded of what he stood for. Now, I want to show you a video. Um, and it's not because I'm a big fan of Kathy Lee Gifford or Megyn Kelly um, or, or any of that, but I want you to watch this video. And maybe you already have. It was, it was on a lot. Maybe you've already seen this. If you have, hang with me. If you haven't, then I think this is a great way for us to close today. Watch this. He used to preach about the joy, the joy of belief. Absolutely. That sounds like you. And what just happened for Billy happened for my husband, happened for my mother, for my father. Everybody that dies in Christ goes immediately into the arms of Christ for eternity. That is the hope of the Christian faith. Yes, it gives us the tools we need to live in the world today while we're alive. But that's why I could hold my dead husband in my arms and rejoice. Because I knew where he was. And it gives you the peace that passes all understanding. And if we don't have, if we've ever needed peace in this world, 
We need it now, right? And somebody says to me, why are you so bold about your faith? And I was look at everybody's beautiful face right now. You too. <laughs> I said, why are you so bold about your faith? And I said, you know what? If you had the cure for cancer, would you keep it quiet? Or would you hold it and keep it a secret? And I always say, I have the cure for the malignancy of the soul. And he has a name. And it's Jesus. The simple gospel. You know, I think that's what Billy Graham was known for the best. And reading some of his sermons, listening to him preach as well, he was a guy that it wasn't rocket science, right? When you listen to him talk or when you listen to him preach, he took what we often get confused by and made it so simple for us to understand. And his message was the simple gospel. That God loved us so much that he gave us his son. That if you believe in him, you can have eternal life. Here's the thing that, that caught me this week um, is that I think is just so cool. The same reward that Billy Graham got this week, you can have too. And I know some people are like, yeah, whatever. I'm no Billy Graham, right? <laughs> but we'll be saying that for many years. Um, you don't have to be. In fact, that's the beauty of the gospel message. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter how bad you've been. The same thing that was offered to Billy Graham is offered to you. And you can have that same gift. If you don't know who Jesus is, I'd love to share that story with you again. I'd love to tell you about him. And if you're wondering, if you're sitting here thinking, I don't have that peace that you're talking about. There's something not right with me. There's something about, I need that peace. Maybe it's because you need that Jesus. And to be reminded that you can have that peace as well. I'd love to share with you during the next song, after the service, whatever it takes. I'd love to talk with you. But for now, let's stand and sing.